Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. This is a special edition we're doing. Victor is going to be away. He's going to be traveling. So we've gotten listener questions, and we're asking them, uh, some of them, of Victor, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. His official Home on the internet is t- called the Blade of Perseus, and its web address is victorhanson.com. I'll tell you a little more about that in a moment, Victor. Um, there are some questions about how you write, how you gather your news. We're going to talk, if we have time, I hope we do, about, of all places, Finland, and we'll get to all these things right after these important messages. <laughs> Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, uh, Victor, Catherine Wormert writes that she would love to hear about his, your writing process, unbelievable amount of work he delivers every week, exclamation point. How does he do it? Question mark. And I think, Victor, since we mentioned this on the previous uh, special episode, this is the second of four we're doing. Um, and you've talked about this in the past. But if you also give an idea to our listeners, many of them are new, of how you get your news every day. What's a typical news gathering process on a daily basis for Victor Davis Hanson? But talk about how you write. You're a machine. I mean, you you, you write so much copy. It's staggering. But tell us how you do it. Well, I I try to plan. I mean... I look at it writing as a zero sum game. If you're in writing, you're not doing something else. So and sometimes people and I typically write three ultras a week for the paywall. You know, that's twenty one hundred words. That's that's for the website. We'll yes. talk about that a little later. And then I write twenty two hundred words for um American greatness for Monday morning. 
And then I write 800 words for uh, my syndicated column. It also appears in American Greatness. And then I try to write another, so that's basically 5,000 words. And then I try to write another 1,000 to 2,000 for the new criterion. I'm working on, always working on articles. And then I probably write 5,000 words a week um, for my book. So I'm always working on a book. So I, I just finished this rough draft of the end of everything, how war becomes uh, annihilation. And that's 110,000 words. It's a little harder with long COVID because I had no energy, but I do about 10,000 words a week. But my point is this, that everybody said, that's the machine, or you say that, but you really do give up a lot. So my wife and I do not go out to dinner. I wish I could do more, and I'm planning to do more, but maybe once every two weeks at the most. And we usually confine it. I don't have a social life at Stanford, so I come home and all my friends are here. and. So we will go out maybe I growing up, I always tried to justify it by getting kids. My kids, I didn't spend enough time with my kids. I was there with them physically. They would come in. My daughter would sit. I have a picture of my late daughter sitting on my lap. You know, I was typing over her shoulders. But I, and I typed in airports. I typed everywhere. I typed at Little League. I must have typed. I, I wrote the entire um, soul of battle at high school baseball games. Literally. Wow. In fact, my son got so embarrassed because all it was mostly Hispanic team, all Mexican-American guys. And they say, who is the crazy guy up there <laughs> who has this computer and he's just typing? He has a stack of books. Yeah. And my, Bill goes, I don't know who it is. <laughs> and finally go, Billy, it's your dad, isn't it? But, but let, let me let, let me try to narrow this a little bit, though. You write a book and I think you you. What I read when you have a syndicated column, that is essentially how you type it. That's how it comes off the keyboard. And it's pretty much written in whole paragraphs and thought yeah. out. Oh, yeah, it's just... not a, there's not like Charles Krauthammer would say, I asked him once, Why would you write for something for National Review? And he's explained his writing process. You know, his column took him like 18 you know, edits. He went over and over, but you're not. You're oh no, I no no. What I do is coming out of you naturally. I think. Uh, well, I use, I use correct. I use the forty-eight hour rule. So if I have a okay. deadline, forty-eight hours before, I don't. I get an idea and I just write it out, and I can do two thousand words in twenty-five minutes. But it's I would not show that to anybody. Okay. And then the next day, I go through. Or the next, say, eight hours later, I go through a spell check. I clean it all up. And then the next iteration, I go through with 10. And these are 10-minute iterations. And then I go through and on online and check the facts and do. I don't have anybody that edits them, except at the magazine. They do have an editor. But yeah. then I do that. And then I let it sit there for 10 or 12 hours. And then I go back and try to, you know, rhetorically get it. To be readable, I really try to to make it interesting as as I define interesting. So that right. I can do. But a is, call, the, is the final are, is the final two thousand words ninety percent of the original two thousand? I'd say eighty percent, eighty percent. And Still, then to write to write that much copy in that short a time, Victor is. But like, it's like I mean, it's it's a, it's a talent. Uh, I'm sixty nine, <laughs> so it's like yeah. ask it's asking, you know, an electrician. My God, when I saw these guys, we had. Uh, Two uh, 
Juan and Armando, good friends of ours that were wiring our house. And I'd say, oh, my God, how do you go in that spaghetti of knob and tube and cut it all out? And then you dim, 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 and you've got this. You said, Victor, I do this for a living. And so it's the same thing. I couldn't yeah. do I didn't I couldn't do this at 28. I, I would just laborious. But now okay. I, but I can do it. I, I keep it for. I keep interrupting you because this, I'm sorry, it's uh, fascinating. It's different to write a 2000 word article. It, it's much harder to write. A, it's much write harder to write. Yeah, it's much harder to write 800 words than 2200, actually. Oh, because okay. uh, you have to. And then the other thing I do on books, I do it very differently than most people. But I had talked to some people I really admired writers. And uh, I wrote John Keegan once a letter and he gave me an idea. And I, I would always. When I would be around great writers, I always said to myself, shut up. You don't have much to say. And what you say, you'd be, be you better off be quiet. Just listen and absorb. So if I was around Martin Gilbert, the historian, or John Keegan, or I met right. Stephen Ambrose, I would try to listen to them. But I'd always ask the same questions you're asking. But what I came up with very early on is when I get a topic, I just sit down. I take no notes at all. I just read books. So on this book, I'm doing a chapter on the Aztec conquest, the fall of Constantinople, the fall of uh, Carthage in 146, and the fall of classical Thebes. And I just read everything I can. A lot of these things I, I, I've known about in the case of antiquity, but I just read maybe for six, eight weeks, maybe four or 5,000 pages, but I don't write anything. And then when I feel that I really know that and I'm re reading the same thing over and over again in different authors, and I always try to read primary sources first, then I sit down at the computer and I don't try to do footnote. I just write an essay for 40,000 words. And I picture that as the core of an onion. Right. That's the core. And then I take all the books, articles. I go search. I have now a research helper, David Berkey and Morgan. Hunter and they, I say, these are the areas. Can you get Xeroxes or will you get online links? And they, and I tell them what they want and they search libraries and then they send it to me. And then I go through each one of them and I go back to that 40,000 uh, word original. And each book is a, is a layer of the onion. So I subtract, add, modify, reject incorporate things I've learned specifically when I footnote, then I start adding footnotes and then I get another book and then I'll get an ancient source. And I just keep doing that for maybe six months. And then that original 40 thing magically grows by about five to eight, 5,000 words a day. And all the documentation is there. And I have no notes. I don't, I do it all in my head uh, as far as the outline and everything. And then when I'm done, I put it away for two or three weeks, and then I say, now I'm going to have eight or nine, eight or another item. I'm going to go through for the whole thing for grammar and syntax. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to go through style. Do I repeat my vocabulary? Do I have interesting vocabulary? Do I have long paragraphs, then short paragraphs, and really variety, variety, variety? So I do it on style. Then I go back again, and I say, now I got to do content. And I start with the idea that if I'm writing about a historical thing, there's going to be errors. So I say to myself, there must be 100 errors in this in spelling, because I just wrote an essay, and then I'm not, I wasn't looking. So I say to myself, you're going to get all of the brothers of Montezuma, our cousins or nephews names right. So right. I just look at them, I say, I know that's wrong. 
So I find, I check it and I do a word search on the whole book and I go through like that fact checking. And then I finally, then when I'm all done, I have people that I trust. So I send a copy to my wife. I send Bruce Thornton, my colleague for 30 years or 21 years in my case. He was there 35 at Cal State, great classicist, author of 12 books. I have him read a copy. And once in a while, I'll have somebody else read a copy. And then I have my two research people, Morgan and David, read a copy. And Megan helps too. And they find things. And then I send it off. And then it starts all over again because then you have line editing, you have content editing, and then yep. line editing. And then, you know. Well, the problem have you have, you write so much. I And I know this from our discussions. I hate to say, Victor, you have a problem, but you you uh, like how, the take the Second World Wars as a book. It how when it was published it was how many words, but how many like words? Two hundred. Uh, well, the the contract said one hundred and seventy thousand. I submitted about two hundred and seventy. Wow. So I so I think I fudged and argued, and they kept about two ten, two twenty, and I had to cut. 50,000. Some of them I used on my ultras, but not a lot. I lost right. a lot of that. I had a whole chapter on intelligence. And then uh, I cut that. And then I got some reviews that said, well, this is a good book, but you should have talked about intelligence. <laughs> anyway, I, I try to do that. And, yeah. you know, I also try to be, you know, everybody says I'm going to write a book or I'm going to article. But I had a grandfather always tell me, Reese Davis, you got to calibrate, Victor. When you say you're going to come out in the vineyard and you're going to help me dig weeds, we got to ask what that means. That means two minutes per tree, and we're going to do a whole row of 100 trees, so we're doing 200 minutes. So I want you for three hours. And I'd never thought like that before because I had I was young. And so when I do these things, I say to myself, like this book, I said, okay, Victor, you're 68. You're going to do 110,000 words on if you're going to do 30 hours a week, 52 weeks is 1500 hours. Do you really want to sit there for mm -hmm. 1500 hours on your body, not getting exercise? And then worst thing you right. can do is turn on a laptop after eight o'clock. And I've been doing that now for a year and a half where I, my wife will watch TV or be reading, and I will be typing into 8, 9, 10 at night. And then when I go to bed, I just can't shut it off. My mind right. races. Right. So it's not good for your health. And so now I've come to the conclusion that you're 69. If you're lucky, you have maybe eight or nine more years. Do you want to do this the rest of your life? You've done 26 of these books. Can't you just say enough is enough unless... And yeah. can't you enjoy go up to your house in the Sierra, see your grandkids? So I, I'm trying to learn at this late age that I probably overdid it. And it takes it, put it this way, when you're in a room and you're typing and all these thoughts come, you know, what was Cortez different like than Scipio Africanus? Why was Scipio Africanus different than Scipio Nasica? To what was the extent of child sacrifice in Carthy? When you have all these ideas racing when you're driving and you can't get them out of your head, it kind of makes you insane. And then it takes a toll on you. And yeah. You can't just yeah. relax and clear your mind. So uh -huh. I, I've always tried to do that. My wife can sit down in an hour, meditate, and can be out cold. And if I can mm. do that, I've tried that. And the only time I can do it is if I go have acupuncture for long COVID. I go there for 30 minutes and they have to wake me up. That's the only time in the day I've ever been able to do that. 
And I'd like to learn how to do that and relax because I look back at this 26 books and teaching, you know, five classes a semester, four classes, five, 10 a year at Cal State Fresno. Yeah. And traveling all over the United States for the Hoover fundraising. And I don't know. I, I You think, why can't you just, I don't have, well, a, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have lived the life that I did. I put it that way. Okay, well, I'll just say uh, the life you lived has been beneficial to uh, Western civilization, and I don't and think many so. People, well, you that's, you should read my. You, you're, you're not you entitled should. to an opinion on that. Well, that's my opinion. But let let's let's move on, my friend. No, no you're gonna life's going to be better, and and you will you will smell the roses a little bit. But first, we're going to talk about what you do when you get up in the morning at six o'clock. And we're going to get to that right after these important messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, the second of four special uh, episodes we are recording to uh, take up the slot when Victor and uh, his merry band of uh, fellow folks, I think you'll be on a Hillsdale College uh, cruise, and our readers have very kindly submitted questions that they would like Victor to answer. So, Victor, I know you talked about this once before on a podcast and it's that you get up at, at six in the morning is when oh, you I got used to. I get up at coffee, but four forty-five. Okay, well, and you and you begin your day of of several couple of hours anyway of of assessing news of you know finding out what's going on in the world today. So that's one of the questions, Victor. Yeah. How do you acquire uh, news? Well, I try to to every morning read for two and a half hours and. Uh, and and have coffee, and I know you know it's uh, what I try to do is have gradations. So I say, what does the populist press say? What are people who are not PhDs or journalists, and they're not with marquee? What are they saying? Kind of like blogs, right? And so, and I try to do uh, left and right, the loony left too, but. So I go on things like hot air or red state just to see what they're saying, right? And I know that I get kind of uh, – I go to the ace, you know, ace of spades. In fact, I saw the other day that he said I was a lurker, meaning 
somebody must have told me that I read it. But I like, I know, I know he gets a lot of criticism, and he, but I really like his, his style, Ace. Yeah. Right. And I think he's a brilliant guy, and he he puts things on there that are important to be aware of. So I do that first for about 15 minutes. And then I try to get the marquee. I used to read the New York Times. I can't do it anymore. I can't stomach it. So what I try to do is I read the Wall Street Journal cover to or online cover to cover, so to speak. I try to read... Um, local websites uh, in this area for local news. And then I go up to what I would call partisan websites that are either, I look at political just to see what they're saying. Uh, if I want an encapsulation of shotgun approach, I really like Glenn Reynolds. So I try to look at what he does. And there's a guy that is there. I don't know if you know him, that uh, Ed Driscoll. Yeah. He, he, he's a wonderful guy. I knew him. Um, when he worked at Pajamas Media. I really like him, but they post things. And uh, so I, I try to see what the, what captures their attention. And then I try to read things uh, like political on the left, but then I'll look at, uh, I just have a soft spot for Powerline. I really like John Henniker and Scott Johnson and Steve Hayward always have so and and they they have a they're very witty and they they're well written and scott knows a lot about music for example scott and, is one of the loveliest men on the planet I, he i'm is. very fond of him i am too i am john and scott and steve i like a lot and so i read them religiously in fact sometimes i'll just skip toward them first i read the federalist i read yes john uh Yes, Jack, I do read National Review. And <laughs> I'm not on the paywall. You say I'm on the paywall, but you've never got I gave you a gift subscription, but you have to figure a way but, that you can uh, we get like a password. Our, we yeah. like our ex-colleague, Andy McCarthy. And so yeah. I, I like yeah. to read that. And then um, I do that. And then I try to look at longer essays. And I try to do left and right. I try to see what the left is saying in Atlantic. And that's kind of hard to stomach. I read the New Criterion. I read the American Spectator and things like that as well. And I read the uh, then I want to see sort of partisan edgy stuff. I read the day. I like Ben Shapiro. I read the Daily Wire and I read the Daily Caller. And when I get done with that, it's about two hours. I go to yeah, things like Quillette to see if there's Oh, long that's a terrific website. Yeah. Yeah. Long essays there. And then I get, uh, I'm on about, I don't know how I got on. I'm about 50 uh, subscription list, you know, of news aggregators left and right. right. So I'll see things that come in. Roger Kimball's a close friend and he'll send me his daily stuff. And I always like to read Roger. So I, I I put it all together and I would say 65% is conservative, 35% is a left. I get into an insight into what the left, you know, so if I think they're going after the court and I know they have talking points, uh, I just know that they're going to go after Clarence Thomas. They're going to rationalize showing up at the Supreme Court. They're going to talk about packing the court. They're going to talk about Fourteenth uh, Amendment, or they're going to try to use lawfare, and, and I'd like to see how they formulate right. that 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 narrative. So that's what I do for about two and a half hours, and then during the day I, I, I keep up, and I usually do maybe each day I take four or five interruptions, 
and for 10 to 30 minutes, I do the uh, Epic Times podcast. I do Megan Kelly's podcast. I have some old favorite guys that call me. Um, Don Crow, yeah, John Bachelor. I do try to do each with Don Crow. I have a kind of a group of about 10 journalists. I just did, um, I did two today. One was a local guy who I really like. And, um, so I try to do that podcast and then I try to do three, I try to limit to three or four Fox Newses a week. I want to remind people when you write me. Or you attack me and say I'm a paid lackey of Fox. I do not get paid. I'm not a fact. I right. I'm not a paid analyst. That's all gratis. And that came in handy when Stanford targeted me, and I tried to explain to them I was not getting paid. Right. Not that not that a lot of left wing people are being. Uh, they are being paid by CNN that are Stanford professors. But nonetheless, that, that's a pretty. I think yesterday was a Sunday, and I, th- I think by the time I did podcast and I wrote my uh, column and I wrote my ultras, and I also gave some, just some friends wanted some advice, I wrote 16 hours. Oh, my God. So. Okay. Wow. That's yeah. staggering. That's yeah. staggering. All right. Well, Victor, I have one more um, writing back to the writing and and then also question about nato and finland and that we will get to those questions right after this final important message We're back with the victor davis hansen show a special episode victor you told me once i told you once that i wrote this piece for national review was the back page the happy warrior column. yes i remember and, that and some of my colleagues are and the first word in many of them was i and it was i i it was like a mariachi band you know I, 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 and i thought just can you not put the word i in there so the piece i wrote i i i even though i'm saying i now I'll be damned if I have the word I in there. And it's about seeing the Milky Way. It was actually, I'm, I'm very happy, proud of, proud of the piece, but the word I was not in there. And you, you are very rare to use the word I. I try not to do it. And you had some uh, professor discuss this with you at one point. Yep. No? Would you tell us about that? Well, I ha- you know, I had a thesis advisor that I don't think was very fond of me. I, I've had that experience a lot, but Michael Jameson, but he was a beautiful stylist. He was a great classicist. He was a student of Greek religion, ancient Greek religion. And we battled back and forth, probably because I was going on weekends to the farm and I wasn't, you know, I didn't go to the opera in San Francisco or I didn't want to go to Greece and drive around on archaeological sites because you know, my grandfather was 86 and I was working on the raisins or my dad or something. But anyway, we didn't get along, but he taught me a lot about style. And he always said, it's variety, variety, variety. And so if you're going to use the word I, make sure you haven't done it for 30 pages or 40. And so I I rarely do it. And if I do it, it's just for emphasis. Same thing. That That's what writing's about. It's when you break the canons of grammar and syntax deliberately, so it's for emphasis. I know that I had this discussion once with John Keegan in Washington. He and I were at an event, and I said, you have a very strange style. I saw you said 
you were talking in very refined polysyllabic Latinate vocabulary about a battle. And then you said, and this was no small beer. What was that for? He said, I tried to use a Anglo-Saxon colloquialism to break up and shock the reader and derail him from the sophisticated vocabulary. And you have to do that. And so people like that, I were very formative. And that's how right. I, I, I try to, to, I never use the word I uh, unless I'm doing it for emphasis. Right. And I use the archaic, I try to use archaic, archaisms, like one would say once in a while. Right. I try also in each long column, I try to think of a polysyllabic Latin word that people are not familiar with, but with a rule, I'll only use one. So that rather than to be ostentatious and to show off, I'm trying to introduce a vocabulary word that somebody might say, well, I read that guy's piece and I learned a new word today, but just one. And very, very Buckley-esque. Yes. Yeah, uh, just one. Yeah. I n- never, but never more. And then I also say to myself, who is reading this? And I try to write paragraphs that are different, that people that are, you know, have college training might enjoy who read a lot. And then people who don't read very much can understand and find it accessible. Yeah. All right. Well, that's very um, uh, instructive, I think, to any uh, listeners out there who are who are uh, putting pen to paper. Variety, variety, variety. I also, you know, I, I was a, I got a PhD not in archaeology or history, but in classical philology, the study of the classical Greek, Roman, and language, Roman and Greek languages, Latin and Greek. And one of the things you have to do is read ancient students of rhetoric and style, Longinus on the Sublime or Quintilian, and and it's just fascinating to hear what they say and read it and experience it. So. I always say to myself, if you use the word constitution to take one, don't use it more than two. But I have students who will say, we're going to, uh, the American constitution was ratified in 1783 or seven, you know, something. And they'll say, the American constitution has three parts of government. The con- and they'll use constitution right. till you want to vomit. Right. And it's very hard to have a circumlocution or a thesaurus, but you should be able to. For, and that goes down to the word, to the sentence. So you can have a sentence that can be five sentences long, five lines long. And then you don't want to have five of them in a row like that. Have a sentence that's too long and then have one that's just subject, verb, predicate, three words. Yeah. Or then have a paragraph that's you should have. You should never have a one sentence paragraph. You should never have a one page paragraph, but break up. So when you look at that page, they're short, long paragraphs and then try to change. I mean, we have two vocabularies in English. We have the Greek and Latin vocabulary and we have the Anglo-Saxon Germanic. We all know that, don't we? So you have a formal word urinate first. And we know that's Latin comes actually from a Greek word. And then we have piss. We have fornicate, the F word. We have defecate, the S word. The Anglo-Saxons are the crude form of the language. And right. so what you want to do is you you want to mix up that type of vocabulary. Mm. I also read Orwell. I, every once in a while, I'll go back to read his essays on style. And he's a big uh, enemy of foreign words and things like that. And I try not to do it too much. Well, so I, I, it's, I try to read a lot of handbooks, ancient and modern on E.B. White and all that, about how to write. I think when you get older, uh, you don't cease to do that. 
Yeah. Well, I think uh, not that we should elaborate on this, but if you can look back at something you wrote 20 years ago and and not cringe, I think that's a that's a a, a good thing. So, Victor, okay, we have we're running out of time, but we have to, you know maybe a few few minutes here. It's a big topic, but a few minutes. And it's a question from Johan Wickman, and Johan is a is a Finn. I'm not yes. sure if he's living in Finland. And he 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 kind of asked about your thoughts on the history of NATO, etc. But I mean, you could write a book about that. But Finland and Sweden are um, in the pipeline to being you know uh, joining an expanded NATO. I guess let me let me take what um, Johan asked and and make a little finish angle on it. What, what would you think of the benefits of Finland joining Finland's, you know, obviously it's uh, it's a border with, with the Soviet Soviet union, excuse me, with Russia is extensive. He also said Finland has a magnificent artillery um, component, but what would you think of the up benefits or not of Sweden and Finland joining? And if you have any other thoughts about, NATO uh, today versus its intention, what what its original purpose was? Well, NATO, remember, was formed in 1949. And the first secretary general was a brilliant British general, Lord Ismay. And he was a confidant in Churchill. He actually wrote, wrote actually, I think he wrote a, a brief biography of Patton. He was very rare for a British general to like Patton, but he did. And he said the mission of NATO was threefold to keep Germany down, Russia out, and America in. And what he meant was that World War II had been caused, he felt, by American isolationism in part, and the failure of appeasement to harness Germany, and the wild card of Russia that had signed the Non-Aggression Pact of August 23rd, 1939. So NATO would be then keeping Russia out of Europe, making sure that Germany did not, for the fourth time in 100 years, i.e. the Franco-Prussian War, World War I, World War II, leave its borders to attack another European country and to make sure the United States would be engaged. And that's it. it so from 1945 until now, we haven't had a full-scale world war as those were. We've had this Ukrainian war, which is... So there's 31 members. The problem we all have with it is that we keep adding members with the narrative that that adds strength, but it also adds vulnerability because Article 5 of NATO, which we invoked, I think, after 9-11, says that if a NATO country is attacked, not if it goes attack somebody, but if it is attacked, all the other nations have to come to its defense. Well, the more nations you have, and the closer they are to bellicose enemies, enemies that are volatile, like Russia or, you know, um, well, like Russia, but also when you have so Middle East, that's, Middle, that'll Middle, suffice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that suffices. Then are you going to come if you've got a small Slovakia or a small country that says, you know, are you going to get somebody having cappuccinos and I don't know, Florence should flock over to Slovenia or, and die for them or Lithuania or something. So there's exposure there. And we see that with Ukraine. If it had been a NATO member, we would have a nuclear confrontation right now because we'd be sworn to protect its sovereignty. So that's a problem. And so 
there, and then the other problem very quickly is there was a deal for, partly at Yalta, but reified at Potsdam. I don't mean it's written, but the, the general deal with the Soviet Union and the fact that they had five times as many troops in Eastern Europe and the Soviet borders on Europe than we did after the war was over, that we could not save Eastern Europe from communism. Everybody said, well, Churchill gave it away, or Roosevelt gave it away, or both of them. We didn't have the manpower to protect the Czechoslovakia at the time, or Poland, or Romania, or Hungary, etc. But we did get some concessions. When he violated all of his post-war accords, Stalin, we were able to get Finland, and Austria as neutral countries that would not have Soviet control directly over them with the proviso that they would not join the Warsaw Pact and they would not join NATO. Well, that's a little problem, and that's why Finland and Austria are a little different than their na European neighbors. The second proviso was that although we had lost those Eastern Europeans, we were going to reach into the neighborhood of the Soviet Union and insist on both the Ataturk traditions in Turkey, but a secular Turkey at the time and Greece, and they were going to be Western. In other words, they, even though the Soviet Union could have absorbed them, they would not. And so that explains a lot of NATO, why Finland was not in it, why Austria is not in it, why Greece and Turkey are in it, and they're very exposed. Okay. The other thing about NATO was it was also unspoken that there would be an ability to tampen down historical rivalries within NATO. It wasn't just keeping Germany down as the French wanted. There were auxiliary understandings, i.e. that Britain and France, and only Britain and France in Europe would have nuclear weapons. That was aimed at Germany. And that Turkey and Greece would both be in NATO. So they wouldn't, Turkey wouldn't bully Greece, much bigger, much larger. And Greece is exposed in the Aegean. So there were certain contours of NATO we don't even appreciate today. The final thing about Finland was in the so-called Winter War, remember after Hitler had digested uh, Poland right. and he was still under the auspices of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of non-aggression, he right. went into Finland to carve out land that he felt should have been Soviet there's always a contentious 800-mile border. And they got their nose chewed off. They went in in November, and they lost a half a million casualties. And the Finns were on skis. They were, I mean, the greatest marksman in the history of wartime assassination was a Finnish sniper. I think he killed over 500 Soviets. But they just absolutely decimated Stalin's army. And the finally, great, uh, David Goliath thing in modern they, warfare. They right? did. And then they got they had to go in and clean up. And so they Mannerheim, they the, the Finnish president made a deal basically that if the Soviet when they had an armistice and the, Russia wanted to get out, I mean, they knew they couldn't take over Finland. They wanted to, to just take some territory. But they said to them, you will not attack Finland. Uh, Finland, you will not stage an attack against Russia, and we will not invade you. So then when 
Finland allied with Germany and Germany went in and was surrounding Leningrad right on the Finnish border. The Finns said to the Germans, we're not going to go in to any area of the Soviet Union. We will help you control your northern flank, but we don't know if you're going to win or not. And the Russians will invade us. And you know what? By and large, Stalin, after the war, kept his word because the Finns had not actively, even though they were pro-German and they were Finnish pilots. This is all a, a wordy background to what the questionnaire is saying. Yes, they have. Uh, they punch way above their pay grade. I think they have 15 to 2000 artillery pieces. They have drones. They have sophisticated F-35s, they have F they have 70 or 80 F-16s and F-35s. Mm. And if every country in the West was like Finland, NATO would be unassailable. So when they join, then that's a plus because they know how to deal with the Russians. They've dealt with them. They've made accords with them, but they're sick of being bullied and they're scared of Putin. And they saw what they did in Ukraine and they want help. But if they if we come to a war, they will fight like hell. And they're a lot better. Even though they're much smaller, they're a lot better prepared than Ukraine. And the same thing is true of my ancestors, the Swedes. They have an independent arms industry and they make wonderful fighters, sab fighters. They've got a whole military. I know you're going to say, Victor, you're just an idiot. You're just a Swedish chauvinist. They're socialists. <laughs> All they want to do is go to the nude beaches in Greece and <laughs> and hang out with Greek gigolo. We're not going to do it. We saw we saw what. They make great butter cookies. Yeah, <laughs> you know, those awful rye crackers and your yeah. stupid Electrolux vacuum cleaners and your ladybug Volvos and all that. No, 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 no. Charles the 12th, uh, Gustavus Adolphus, they were among the most Viking. They were among the most warlike martial people. And they're the very competent and they're they're tough. And they know the Russians and they're scared now of the Russians. So if we can get them in NATO, those two countries will be more of a plus than mine. Turkey's holding it up. Well, I, you know, if I, in a perfect world, we shouldn't have Turkey in there because it's an Islamic non-democratic nation now. It's not Ataturk's secular state. It's got right. the largest military in Europe, but it's flirting with the Iranians. It's flirting with the Russians. It's flirting with the Chinese. It's supplying weapons to Russia against Ukraine. We have a very ambiguous relationship about our ossified but big nuclear weapons that are in Sarlacc Air Force Base down there near the Syrian border, where every once in a while, people around Erdogan will say, well, you know, the United States is not going to take those weapons out of Turkey, meaning they've been there so long, they're kind of ours. And the national emergency, we might just take them. And when they had that coup, it was very ambiguous. They were they, It was very amb ambiguous whether the U.S., had absolute sovereignty. And I think we're trying to take them out piecemeal. Yeah. It's kind of scary. And then I think it was three months ago, Erdogan said, to, lectured the Greeks, you're going to wake up one morning and missiles are going to be in your face coming from Turkey. And he said things such as roads and the Dodecanese islands, Samos, Lesbos, uh, to the north of them are really Turkish. And so, and they've never been Turkish. So, even they, they held out against the Ottomans a long, long time. So, right. my point is that it's a very tenuous, but I sympathize with small, vulnerable Eastern European countries and Western European countries. But 
when you talk about NATO, 70% of the military budget is the U.S. 90% of the nuclear deterrent is the U.S. And if there is no U.S., there's no NATO. That's just a fact. And countries like the Belgians or the Ducks or Luxembourg, all those small little countries in right. the West, the idea that they're going to field muscular, you know, troops and go all the way to the Greek border or the it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's going to be an American and to a lesser extent British operation with, with and Eastern European. The best I know that we got in the faces of Putin with getting the Warsaw Pact members into NATO, but man for man, the Poles and the Hungarians and the Czechs, they'll fight. And they're and I think the Russians know it. if you look at on paper, NATO is a really formidable military force as far as uh, total aircraft. It's not the problem with them with the wealth. It's it's whether the young people of Europe are committed to the defense of Europe in a uh, in a serious right. fashion. But that's well, true. It's like the young true, people of yeah. uh, Britain after World War before World War Two were they committed? No, they no. Uh, a for famous Trump. Oxford. You know, right. debate. We will not fight for king and country. Yeah. Well, Victor, that's about all the time we have. I do want to. Rec I, I think I forgot to do this. But, you know, my my short term memory is a really short term problem today. But if I haven't mentioned, subscribe to uh, victorhanson.com, Especially you new listeners, you should do that because if you're a fan of everything Victor writes, we just spent a long time hearing Victor talk about how much he writes, and a lot of that is done for. Uh, the Blade of Perseus, you need to subscribe to read the Ultra article. So do that. It's five bucks, get you in the door, $50 for the year. And if you want it, one of those aggregator newsletters that Victor was talking about, well, I write one. It's called Civil Thoughts. I do it for the Center for Civil Society at Ampville, which used to be American Philanthropic. We are determined to strengthen civil society. And I offer you a dozen plus recommended readings of things I've come across in the previous week. A lot, you mentioned Quillette before, Victor. You'll find typically something from Quillette, something from the tablet, something from the spectator, et cetera. So I think you'll enjoy it. It's free, no risk, no, we're not selling your name. Victor, thanks uh, for the wisdom you shared. Thanks, folks, for listening. And we will be back. I wish I could say that clearly. We will be back within a few days with yet another episode, a special episode yes. of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks for yeah. listening. Thank you. Thank you.